Welcome back, brothers and sisters. This is Seed Wars number eight, part two. It's a continuation of the last lecture. <clears throat> and I think it's very important that you watch that lecture before this one so that it makes sense. And in the last lecture, we were looking at this concept of heteropaternal superfecundation. That's the concept. It's a biological truth that a woman can be impregnated by two different fathers during the same cycle of ova, during the same fertilization process, which basically results in two fraternal twins in the womb. They have the same mother's DNA, but they have two different fathers. And the theory that we're espousing, which is obviously tremendously controversial, is that the Nakash, the great enchanter, the diviner, the beguiler, who put a spell on Eve in the garden, that that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil was sexual knowledge. That's what knowing someone meant back in those days. To know somebody means to have had relations with them. And that it's possible. And I stress the word possible because I wasn't there. It's possible that Eve learned this sexual knowledge from the Nakash, which resulted in her impregnation of a seed line, that being Cain. And then shortly after, she knew Adam. She revealed to Adam what she had learned, the same way that the Nakash taught her. And we know that Adam did make the choice to participate in the forbidden fruit. And therefore, she then became impregnated with a second seed, which would be the seed of the woman. And we also took a look at this concept of Jacob and Esau. We showed how it's, how it's a very similar and analogous process where two twins are being born, but they're clearly vastly different. And Paul even says that one of those twins was the seed of the flesh which is not from God, and the other was the seed of the promise, which was. And that's who Jacob and Esau were. And that one of them was made as a vessel of honor, and one of them was made as a vessel of dishonor. Sort of this concept of duality, that there's good and there's evil, and we need both sides. And God was always there along the way, ensuring that there were both sides of the equation. You may say, well, why, did, why would God do that? Well, you know, the Proto-Evangelium says there's going to be a battle between the two seed lines and that the Messiah is going to crush Satan's head and the seed line is going to crush Messiah's heel. So there has to be the negative aspect of this prophecy. Someone has to fulfill the Proto-Evangelium. Someone has to be the bloodline that's alive during the days of Christ that crucify him. Remember, from the foundation of the earth, it was always about God saving humanity from themselves. And that's what Jesus came to do. And it was always about the crucifixion. And so it is a lot, in a lot of ways, it is like the cover of this book. It's a great chess game. The pawns of the, of the table are being moved all throughout history. So let's proceed forward. So now that we've established that it is at least biologically possible 
for Eve to have two different seeds within the womb. That's not a, a theory or, or anything like that. It is possible. There is a real scenario called heteropaternal superfecundation where a woman can be impregnated by two different fathers. That can't be argued. Whether that's what happened in the garden or not, now, of course, that can be argued, and I'm sure that will be argued to the end of time. But the, the fact is, is that that is still a possibility, and we have to accept that that is a potential possibility. So now what we want to do is kind of look at the controversy of Cain and Abel's birth. And I would say that this by far, if there was ever a verse in the entire Bible that was extremely controversial towards this idea, it would be the following verse. This, is, this verse has created so much debate amongst theologians for a long time, and you'll see why shortly. Genesis 4.1 reads, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So at first glance, this seems pretty straightforward. It says that Eve conceived and had Cain and Abel. She knew, it says here, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and had Cain and Abel. So you say, there it is. Adam's the father of both of them. However, there's been a lot of debate about the original Hebrew translations in this verse. And at the end of the day, we still have to understand that the King James translation which was developed in, in 1604 and then went to the printing press in 1611, okay? That's just 400 years ago. We're talking about events that happened 5,000 years ago in the garden. And we're looking at writings that are only 400 years old. That wasn't a long time ago. Now, most scholars believe that the cleanest translation is the King James Bible. But nonetheless, it's still a translation. You understand that? It is still a translation. It's not the original. And we have to take that into consideration that this has been translated from Hebrew to Latin to English, etc. And so, is it possible that there are some details lost in translation? Or maybe these details were admitted intentionally. Maybe they were omitted by God or by man or whatever. Now, I think the serpent in the garden is a great example of this. We know that when you read the English version, people still think we're talking about a literal snake. But when you really look closely at the Hebrew, it becomes more clear that we're talking about a diviner, an enchanter, a shining one, one who whispers in your ear and casts a spell over you. And when he whispers in your ear, it makes a hissing sound like a snake. And so we begin to see that there, it, it can be deeper than just what we're seeing. Now, I think it's very worthwhile to explore what the early Jewish leaders believed about the garden event. See, 
they began to develop oral interpretations and some written interpretations called targums. Now the word targum means to translate or to interpret. That's what the targum was. When you read from the targum, it was a translation and an interpretation of past stories. Now these targums were used by the Jewish leaders and the rabbis to expand upon the Jewish scriptures called the Tanakh. Now, it's extremely likely that Jesus and the apostles of that time period, when they went into the synagogues and they heard the rabbis speak, the rabbis spoke from these targums. I mean, that, that's been verified. They used the oral and written targums to teach in the synagogues. Now, at this time, Hebrew is being replaced with Aramaic. Aramaic, the Aramaic tongue was developed back in the days of Babylon. It's also called Syriac or, or the Syrian tongue. We actually see an example of this in the book of Ezra. Ezra is immediately after the Babylonian captivity. And in the days of Artaxerxes, wrote Bishlam and Tabil and the rest of their companions, and, in, and unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue, and it was interpreted in the Syrian tongue. This word interpreted is Tirgum. That's where we get the word Targum from. So, why am I showing you this? Well, this is our Bible. This is the King James Holy Bible. And we're describing an event 450 years before Christ, after the Babylonian captivity, where the Hebrews were taken back to Babylon for 70 years to be punished. God allowed this to happen. They spent five generations there in Babylon because approximately every 15 years, a person would have another child, and that 70-year that period would be approximately four to five generations. And during this time, the Hebrews brought all of their oral and written doc documents with them to Babylon, and the Babylonians began to interpret those things into their own home language, which is Aramaic or the Syrian tongue. And all of those translations and interpretations became called the Targums. So as we can see, since the Babylonian captivity, the scriptures were translated into these Targums, and the rabbis used these Targums to teach in the synagogues going forth. So why is this important? It's important because they have some slight different translations. Now, understand that eventually these Targums are used to form the Babylonian Talmud. Now, the Babylonian Talmud is not inspired literature. It, this is not considered to be inspired from God. However, most rational theologians agree across the board that they are part of our the Jewish history and heritage. I mean, it's a fact that they went to Babylon for 70 years. And we have all the writings of, of that time period. And so they can be considered historical documents. And this is what the Jonathan Targum states about Genesis 4. 
And Adam knew Hava, his wife, that's Eve, who had desired the angel. And she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Now, if you compare that to the King James, they're fairly close. However, as we'll be able to see, the Targum gives us a couple of extra details. The King James says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. That's almost identical. However, notice above, we're told in the Jewish Targums that his wife had desired the angel. We see that in the garden account, that when she saw that the tree and the fruit was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired and to make one wise, that she partook. And so not only that, but then later in the text, it says, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. That part's also admitted from the King James Version. So that's very interesting. Obviously, if those details are accurate, then that opens up a whole new area of speculation and interpretation because we're being told that Eve desired the angel of the Lord. See, Lucifer is an angel of the Lord. He may be a fallen angel, but he's still an angel of the Lord. In fact, the word desired is the same word we see in Genesis 3. It means to covet something, which always has a sexual application in many ways. It means to take pleasure in something and to lust after something. So last time I checked, most people don't lust after a tree or its fruit for that matter. Now, there's been a debate amongst theologians about the authenticity of these Targums and when they were written. You have people like Gottlieb who says that they came out as far as the 8th century, whereas you have scholars like Beverly Mortensen, who's dedicated her entire life to the Hebrew writings, and she's a scholar of ancient Judaism, and she says that it goes back at least to the 4th century and possibly before. So the reality of it is, is that these authors, these uh, experts, they don't really know exactly when the Targums came out. And we know they started producing them after the Babylonian captivity, and that was almost 500 years before Christ. And so it's reasonable that they could go back into that time range somewhere. Now, Mortensen has argued that this Jonathan Targum, also known as the Palestinian Targum, that it was such a prolific and prominent manual of that era that even the Jewish priests, known as the Kohanan, these are the direct descendants of Aaron, that they actually used it as one of their manuals. And so, although we cannot know its exact timeline and origin, nonetheless, we know it's a very old writing. And more importantly, it reveals what the rabbis believed and were teaching millennia ago. Whether they were right or wrong is the argument, right? We could say, well, those rabbis were wrong. But, I mean, we have to understand that these were the religious prominent men of their era, and at least it demonstrates that they believed that something else happened in the garden. Now, 
Many Christians today will just dismiss these writings automatically because they're from a Jewish source. However, I believe that these Targums are a credible source with regards to the Torah because the Jews considered them to be sacred. And history has revealed that the Jewish leaders were known to be very meticulous in trying to preserve and maintain accurate oral and written records. See, their fathers passed it down to the son, and he passed it down to his son, and we have the same records going down through many genealogies. We know that they worshiped the first five books of the Torah. It goes against logic that they would purposely distort them. So regardless of how you feel about the Jewish texts, at the end of the day, they still demonstrate that the early Jewish people believed that Eve desired the angel. They don't say she desired the tree or the fruit, but that she desired the angel. Another interesting point is the language that's used in the King James Version. Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. That word means to acquire a possession. Um, and it also could mean to like purchase something. You know, to, to gain or acquire a possession, you have to buy it, buy it or trade something for it. In fact, one of the meanings of Cain, we know that it means a spear or a lance. We also know that Cain means the smiths, which is the beginning of the, the, the metal workers. But Cain also means possession or acquired. And so it, it insinuates that Cain was acquired in some unnatural means, that, that there was a price that had to be paid. Something had to be negotiated or traded. It's hard to understand, but the verbiage suggests that Cain was acquired the same way that we look at a possession. Now, I have no doubt that there are going to be critics who say that we're manipulating the scripture. But I just want to remind you that the Old Testament was written in an entire different language called Hebrew. And over centuries, it's been translated into different languages. Latin, Syriac, as we just showed with the Targums, and even English. And so you have to at least consider that some nuances can be lost in translation. These Targums were written a long time ago. They demonstrate the belief system of the rabbis of the day. You may disagree with that, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But I'd like to just take a moment and look at some of the more popular commentaries out there. Matthew Henry has always been one of the most prominent commentaries of the Bible. And this is what he has to say about Genesis 4 with regards to Cain. Now, Matthew Henry never comes out and says that Cain is from Lucifer. But notice some of the um, words that Matthew uses in his description it turns out that one of this is a quote one of Cain's wicked race it's an interesting choice of words is the first recorded to have broken the law of marriage until now one man had had but one wife at a time but one of Cain's descendants Lamech took two he was the first polygamist Henry goes on to say worldly things are the only things that carnal, wicked people set their hearts upon, and so it was 
with the race of Cain. See, Matthew Henry goes out of his way to insinuate that all of Cain's lineage is of its own unique race and that they were all wicked. And so it stands the reason that they would represent the seed of the serpent mentioned in the previous chapter. How about Josephus, the great Jewish priest and historian who wrote the famous book Antiquities of the Jews, 93 AD. This was 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to run through this quickly for the sake of time. God convicted Cain as having been the murderer of his brother, and he said, I wonder at thee that thou knowest what has become of a man whom thy thyself have destroyed. God therefore did not inflict the punishment of death upon Cain on account of his offering sacrifice, and thereby making supplication to him not to be extreme in his wrath, but he made him accursed. And we do know in, in the King James Bible, God cursed Cain. Now, a curse is passed on through all of your posterity. And that's what Josephus says here. But God made Cain a curse, and he threatened his posterity in the seventh generation. That's Tubal-Cain. He also cast Cain together with his wife out of the land. And when Cain was afraid that in wandering about, he would fall amongst the wild beasts and perish, God bid him not to entertain such a melancholy suspicion and to go over all the earth without fear of what mischief he might suffer from the beasts. And he set a mark upon him that he might be known. Now the King James also makes it clear Cain received the mark. And he commanded him to depart Eden. And when Cain had traveled over many countries, he and his wife built a city named Nod, which is a place so called, and there he settled his abode, where also his children. However, he did not accept of his punishment in the order to amendment, but rather to increase his wickedness. For he only aimed to procure everything that was for his own bodily pleasure that it obliged him to be injurious to his neighbors. He augmented, he augmented his household substance with much wealth by rapine and violence. The word rapine means to take plunder and spoils of war. Josephus says, Cain excited his acquaintance to procure pleasures and spoils of robbery, and he became a great leader of men into wicked courses. He also introduced a change in that way of simplicity wherein men lived before and was the author of measures and weights. That's the beginning of currency. We'll look at that later. Notice this. And whereas men lived innocently and generously while they knew nothing of such arts, Cain changed the world into cunning craftiness. He first of all set boundaries about the lands. He built the city and he fortified it with walls, and he compelled his family to come together to it, and he called the city Enoch after his oldest son. Now, I've shown in previous lectures that Cain was the first master mason who built the first city. Josephus goes on to say that Tubal Cain exceeded all men in strength, and he was very expert and famous in martial performances. That means martial arts, war. He procured what tended to the pleasures of the body by that method, and he was the first in inventing the art of making brass. And because that he knew that he was to be punished for Cain's murder, that's the generational curse, 
he made that known to his wives. And nay, even while Adam was alive, it came to pass that the posterity of Cain became exceedingly wicked, every one successively dying one after the other, more wicked than the former. Do you see that? Josephus, one of the greatest historians and Jewish priests of his era, writes in his historical documents that everybody knew, according to tradition, that even while Adam was living, that the posterity of Cain, that means his seed line, became exceedingly wicked, every one successively dying, one after the other, more wicked than the former. That means they're getting worse. They were intolerable in war and vehement in robberies. And if anyone were slow to murder people, yet was he bold in his profligate behavior and acting unjustly and doing injury for gain. That means he wasn't slow to murder people. And so as we can see, Matthew Henry refers to this wicked race of Cain. And even though Josephus never says that Cain came from Lucifer, he makes it clear that every single one that followed Cain was successively more wicked than the previous. Now, I realize that this is not inspired scripture, but we still can't discredit it as an authoritative history book. Scholars unanimously agree that Josephus has provided more history about the Second Temple period and of the Hebrew people than any other scholar in history. This is no different than looking at any other historical document. I mean, we read books like uh, um, Plato's Republic so that we can understand what Plato was thinking back then. We understand that they're not from God, but that doesn't mean that they don't have any historical value. And what we're seeing time and time again is that people are unanimously saying that there's something exceptionally special and wicked about Cain and his follow his predecessors. Now, if this theory, this heteropaternal superfecundation is true, then that would mean that Cain and Abel had to be twins. Otherwise, that theory could not be true. And so there should be evidence to support that theory. Now, we need to notice that the scripture states that Eve conceived once and she bared two children. So in Genesis 4, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare again his able brother. Notice it didn't say, and she conceived again and bare his brother Abel. This would suggest that the boys were twins, since there's only one conception listed in Genesis 4. And to verify this, we can actually look at other examples within Scripture, which demonstrate one conception per childbirth. For example, Genesis 38. And Judah saw there a daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her, and she conceived and bared a son named Ur. And she conceived again and bore another son named Onan. And yet again she conceived and bared another son named Shalah. 
So as you can see, every time a child is born, it says that she conceived. That's God's way of letting us know that there had to be a new situation where sexual intercourse took place and a conception took place and then another child came. Adam Clark, who's another famous historian who, and theologian who did commentaries on the scripture, put it like this. Quote, literally, she added to bear his brother. From the very face of this account, it appears that Cain and Abel were twins. In most cases where the successive birth of the same parents are noted, the acts of conceiving and bringing forth are mentioned with each child. Here, it is not said that she conceived and brought forth Abel, but simply that she added to bring forth Abel. And that is, as I understand, that Cain was the firstborn and Abel was his twin brother who came next. So as you can see, there is some evidence to suggest that they were twins. Now, consider this. Let's say that the brothers are twins. And we'll even go as far as to say that Adam and Eve are the parents. Which is what most people obviously believe. Then Cain and Abel, and Seth for that matter, would have the exact same DNA, genetically speaking. And all of Adam's and Eve's children, in fact, would have identical genetics. And if that's true, then how do we count for the fact that all of Cain's progeny is wicked and all of Seth's progeny is righteous? So you understand that we're looking at biblical genetics. We're looking at the scripture through a genetic lens. And so we understand today that there are autosomal dominant inherited traits and there's autosomal recessive inherited traits. For example, eyes. When you look at the inheritance of eye color, you have multiple different factors. You have the eyes from your mother and you have the eyes from your father and then also you have the eyes from your grandparents and all of those are contributing genes that can potentially lead to different outcomes. But obviously when you see Cain and Abel, for example, they only have one set of parents that can contribute genes. There is no grandmother and great grandfather on your mother's side and on your father's side who could contribute dominant and recessive genes. So if Adam is the, is the source of all genetics and Eve was taken from Adam, which means she has identical genetics as he, except for the sex chromosome, then when Adam and Eve come together, since they have identical genetics, then their children are gonna be a, almost a carbon copy of them. See, if we start trying to figure out how this guy got his specific genetics, where he got his eyes, where he got his hands, where he got his height from, we have to take into consideration that he has parents and that those parents are going to designate certain genes. But not only that, 
this woman right here, his mother, she got some of her genes from her parents. And it's true of dad too. Dad has some genes coming from his parents. And then when you take into consideration that of course these folks had parents and these folks had parents, you begin to see that there are a lot of different potential genes that can be contributed to make this guy down here. In other words, let's just say we could take a big basket and we decided to take grandma's eyes and we're going to throw them in there and we're going to take grandpa's eyes right here on his mother on his mother's side and throw them in there. And then we're going to go over here to his father's side and we're going to take grandpa and grandma's eyes and we're going to throw them into the basket. And then his mom and dad they don't have the exact same genes because they're a combination of the above. So now we've got to take mom's eyes and dad's eyes and we throw them all into the basket. Now we're going to reach in here. We're going to stir up the pot, mix all these genes. Some are recessive, some are dominant. And we're going to pull out the lucky pair of genes for height and eyes, etc. Well, Adam and Eve don't have that situation. It's just Adam and it's just Eve. And so we are only going to take the eyes and the height and all of the other genetic predispositions of Adam and Eve and put them in the box. And that's the only combination of genes that we can work with. So simply stated from a genetic standpoint, since Adam and Eve have identical genes other than the sex chromosomes, and there's no other grandparents or other previous generations to contribute any genetics, then all of Adam and Eve's immediate biological children should have the exact same DNA as Adam and Eve. So if Cain and Abel, and Seth for that matter, all came from Adam and Eve, then they would have the same genetics. And if Cain and Abel are twins, which the scripture suggests they are, then basically they should be identical monozygotic twins with the same DNA. And since we've learned now that DNA is much more than just our physical attributes, in fact, there's a lot of literature that proves that your DNA provides more than just your physical characteristics. It involves everything from memories, personality, and dispositions, attitudes, and things like that. Um, if that's the situation, then it's hard to understand how, with the same identical gene pool, that Cain could produce an entire posterity of unrighteousness and wickedness, and Seth could produce an entire posterity of righteousness. However, if Cain and Abel and Seth do not have exact genes, if they have different fathers, then that would certainly explain how we develop a wicked seed line and a righteous seed line. Especially when you take into consideration that in the previous chapter, we're told that there are going to be two different seed lines, one from the woman, one from the serpent. Just take a look at some of the recent studies we've found about epigenetics. This study shows how epigenetic memory 
is passed across generations. Here in the middle, memories can be inherited, and scientists may just have figured out how. Our life experiences may be passed to our children and our grandchildren, and look at this. We may be able to turn that on and off. In other words, some of these genes from our parents and grandparents can be turned on, and some can be turned off. Over here in the Science Journal, scientists have observed epigenetic memories being passed down for 14 generations in mice. And so what we're learning is that up until recently, everybody thought that DNA just affected what you look like. It was just physical. But now we know that that's not true, that it also helps express tendencies of the parents and the grandparents. If they were righteous people, then likely you will have righteous tendencies. If they were unrighteous people, then there's a greater chance that you will have unrighteous tendencies. So now we need to go back and look very closely at Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. And God said to Adam, Because you've hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and eaten of the tree of which I commanded, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. So God is pronouncing a curse on the ground. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. See there, when he tries to farm and plant and raise food, it's only going to produce thorns and thistles. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. The herb of the field basically means, that word in the Strong's means grass, plants, tender shoots that come out of the ground. And so prior to the flood, they're basically herbivores. Now back in the days of the garden before the fall, that all came real easy, but now things have changed. And this is the same word, herb of the field. You're now gonna eat herb of the field. That's the same thing that God discussed back in the creation account in Genesis 2. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seeds, and the tree yielded fruit whose seed was in itself and after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every true tree which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you shall it be meat. So what we're seeing is Adam wasn't really farming for, for food. He wasn't digging a hole and tilling the ground and fertilizing. No, God had already taken care of the food needs. He made trees which produce fruit and other bushes and things which make berries. And all Adam and Eve had to do is go and pick the fruit, pick the meat of the trees, and eat it. And this is essentially, again, what we see after the fall in the garden. God's cursed the ground. In sorrow shall thou eat all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. So Adam's not going to be much of a farmer going forward, and neither is his offspring due to this curse. Now, let's fast forward to the next chapter. 
Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Interesting. You know, if if what we're espousing is true, if, if Cain and Abel have different fathers, then the curse that was pronounced to Adam and all of the future Adamites, that would apply to Abel, because we know he comes from, from Adam and Eve. And that might explain why Abel decided to be a keeper of the sheep, because the ground doesn't bear fruit for these Adamites at this point in time. But notice that Cain, Cain was a tiller of the ground. In a very subtle way, that would imply that the curse of Adam didn't apply to Cain. And I believe the reason why that is, is because Cain is not the biological son of Adam. And so as a consequence, that curse didn't apply to him. Now later we're going to see that God actually curses Cain in the same way that he did Adam. He curses the ground. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, if you know anything about gardens and plants, once the fruit falls off the vine, it's no longer getting the nutrition from the vine, which means that from that moment forward, as it hits the ground, it begins to spoil. So essentially, Cain didn't bring his best, or what the Bible refers to as his first fruits. Usually the first piece of fruit that blooms on the vine is the most choice fruit. He didn't bring that. He kept it for himself. He always put his needs above God's, very similar to how the Nakash, Lucifer, did the same thing in heaven. Now, God obviously goes on to reject this offering because it's the spoiling fruit. Notice what Abel did, though. Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and their fat. So, we know that Abel was a, a, a cattleman, a herdsman, because he couldn't, the farming wasn't going to happen for them. They had to live off of the natural habitation, the grasslands, the different trees that bore apples and oranges and grapes and all of that. But as far as farming, tilling the ground, that they've been cursed from that profession. So naturally, we'll see that they are more of a herdsman mentality. Now, at this point, man has not been given permission to eat flesh. That doesn't happen until after the flood. It's the Genesis 6 conspiracy with the fallen angels contaminating the daughters of men, creating the hybrids, and all of the cannibalism and the blood drinking and everything. All of that alters everything after the flood so that man is able to start partaking in, in animals after the flood. But that hasn't happened yet. So we can assume that Abel's not eating these animals. Maybe they're being used for sacrifice. Maybe they are participating in the byproducts of these animals. We don't have that clarity in the scripture. We know they're eating bread, as it mentions up here to Adam in, in chapter 3, that in the sweat of thy face shall you eat your bread. So they're eating bread. They're eating the, the trees that bear fruit. 
And here even Abel didn't just bring the firstborn of his flock, but he brought the fat thereof. That means the milk, the cheese, the butter, all of the byproducts of the animal. And I suspect they were probably eating those things. God didn't put a limitation on that as far as I know. Now, we see here that the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering for obvious reasons. Now, at this point, Cain could have made a choice. He could have said, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. I'll start bringing you my first fruits of my produce. But he didn't. Instead, he became very angry and his countenance fell. That word countenance implies his physical attributes. He, he was visibly angry and distraught. Bitterness sunk in. And we know what happens next. He goes on to kill Abel. Now, as soon as that's over, God says, And now you, Cain, are cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood. When thou tills the ground, it shall not yield unto thee her strength. So essentially we see basically the same punishment or curse being applied to Cain. He can no longer be a farmer either. And God takes it a step farther. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be in the earth. And so... This becomes the beginning of Cain being a wanderer in the wastelands since he can no longer do what he wanted to do, which was till the soil. Now he has to start robbing and killing and looting to keep his family alive. And of course, this becomes a generational curse that everybody in his seed line is going to follow in his footsteps in the same similar fashion. Now, later we see after the flood, Genesis 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took every clean beast, every clean fowl, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more of every living thing as I've done. While the earth remaineth going forward, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall never end. So, we see that the curse that was placed on Adam about the thorns and the thistles and not being able to produce fruit that's now been removed. After the flood, God has a change of heart. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to curse the ground anymore for man's sake. That it's so hard for man to survive without these things. I'm going to go ahead and reinstitute these concepts. And now there's going to be an annual seed time and a harvest time and winter and summer and day and night. And there's going to be four seasons and at this point going forward, the Adamites are going to learn how to become farmers again. And Noah demonstrates that right away by planting a vineyard, which unfortunately leads 
to him getting drunk because at this point they've never probably drank a lot before because maybe they didn't have access to the ability to make vineyards. They probably had access to grapes and maybe they did make wine out of those grapes prior to this. We don't have a lot of information on that. But now Noah's actually able to become a husbandryman and make an entire vineyard. And so alcohol gets introduced into the equation. So here's a interesting question for you. If after the fall in the garden, Adam is cursed from the ground and all of his offspring, and that they'll only be able to produce thorns and thistles should they try and farm, then why is it that Cain automatically becomes a successful tiller of the ground? That would imply there's something different about Cain, meaning that he didn't receive the curse of Adam. Now, you know why I think that is, because I don't believe Adam is Cain's biological father. To corroborate that notion, after Cain kills Abel, why is it that God pronounces the same curse on Cain? In other words, if Cain was the biological son of Adam and the curse of Adam applied to him, then why did God have to pronounce the same curse? He wouldn't have had to pronounce the same curse on Cain because it would have already automatically transferred through Adam. But if Adam was not the biological father, then it stands the reason that one, that curse never applied to Cain in the first place, and two, God would have to pronounce a separate curse of the ground on Cain for it to apply and stick. And that's an interesting thing to ponder. Now, after the flood, we see a couple of nuances here. God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's what he told Adam and Eve back in the original creation account. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every fowl of the air, and everything that moves. Into your hand are they delivered. Now, prior to this, the animals and the humans, the Adamites, got along fine. They weren't threatened by each other. And apparently the animals weren't killing each other. The, the, the fall of, of mankind didn't just affect humanity. It affected the whole ecosystem. And so now we're seeing that even the beasts are scared of people. And now people are going to start eating them. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you. Even as I gave you the green herb, have I given you all things. So God's now saying, hey, guess what? You can start eating meat now. These animals are yours to consume. However, verse 4, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood, you shall not eat and neither shall you drink it. So cannibalism is out and blood drinking is out. And the reason why is, and we'll look at this in a future study, before the flood, the Nephilim, are eating humans, they're eating each other at some point, they're drinking blood, they're eating animals raw and consuming their flesh and their blood, and it's a very satanic thing going on, 
And so God says, hey, I'm going to go ahead and um, give you a concession. I'm going to let you start eating meat after the flood, but you're going to do it in a respectful way. And you're not going to eat, you're not going to cannibalize and consume the blood of anything. Now, as soon as God lifts the curse on Noah, or excuse me, as soon as God lifts this curse on Adam and the curse of the ground through Noah, we see immediately that Noah becomes a husbandryman and he plants a vineyard. That never took place prior to this moment. Um, Adam lost that capability. Abel wasn't able to do it. The only other one that was able to do it was Cain. And it's clearly because Cain is not the biological son of Adam. That's why in Genesis 5, it makes it very clear when we look at the book of generations of Adam, Cain is not mentioned. And it says that Seth was made in the image and likeness of Adam, indicating that he is the biological child. Now we see here that soon as Noah starts to plant a vineyard, verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he was uncovered in his tent. That's a very interesting phrase. We're going to have an entire chapter dedicated to this one specific event at a later time. But I want to look at it now because another curse is going to be placed. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers. And when Noah woke up from his drunken episode, he knew what his younger son Ham had done to him, and he said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. Okay. First of all, what on earth is going on here? There's a lot of different theories. We're going to get into all of them at a later time, but for the sake of time, we're just going to kind of jump to the punchline. Ham ends up raping his own mother, which is Noah's wife. And in doing so, he impregnates her with a seed in her belly. This is while Noah's passed out drunk in his tent. When Noah wakes up and he realizes what's transpired, whether that's immediate or whether it's later when he sees her belly start to swell, he pronounces a curse on the seed line. Curse be Canaan. Now understand, it wasn't the moment that Noah just spoke those words that something happened genetically within the womb. No, the curse had already been there. This ancestral uh, rape of Ham and his mother was going to produce Canaan. And as we learn later in the Bible, Canaan becomes the father of the Canaanites. And some of those Canaanites become the giants, the Nephilim clans. So we see that the same seed that happened in Genesis 6 before the flood ends up manifesting again in Noah's son Ham, specifically through that seed of Canaan. And so we see that this curse of Canaan gets perpetuated through all of his genealogy. Now, in the Bible, we refer to this as a generational curse. Notice the word generational. What does that mean? It means it's passed down from one genealogy to the other. And you see the root word, gene. Generational curse is a curse that's passed through the genes. Remember, God has said that life is in the blood. And what he means by that is the DNA, the genetics. 
And so there's been a genetic mutation taking place when Ham deposits his seed into his mother's womb. And we'll look at that at another time. For now, I just want to conclude this lecture with the concept of this generational curse. We see an example of this in Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion when there's repentance. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Notice the word generation. That means someone's genealogy, the passing of one gene to the next, which started in Genesis, the origin of the gene. And so when God pronounces a curse, he doesn't just do, he doesn't just go, Shazam, you're cursed. God allows their DNA to change with inside the person who's committed the sin so that all of their progeny are going to receive the punishment for that. Same thing when Ham sleeps with his mother and, and, and Noah curses the seed line. It wasn't the words that Noah spoke, spoke that led to it. It was the action. But nonetheless, Noah still pronounces the curse and the combination of the curse with the action of raping his mother leads to a genetic anomaly that takes us back to the giants. So we have to understand this concept of a generational curse, that it is in the blood, the DNA. Something's happened to the genes. And so here's the question. Is our DNA fluid or is it set in stone? And the answer is it's fluid. In other words, can choices and decisions we make as human beings, can those things alter our DNA? Well, let me give you an example. Let's consider alcoholism. Let's say that your grandfather and your father were strong alcoholics. Does that mean that you are absolutely destined to becoming an alcoholic? Not necessarily. Now, because your grandfather and your, friend, your father were alcoholics, they've passed on the gene for alcoholism to you. But understand that not all genes are expressed. Some of those genes are just sitting there dormant. Some are activated, some are inactivated. Some are going to be turned on in the future. Some will never be turned on. So if you've inherited this gene for alcoholism, then that predisposes you to that potential. However, God, in his infinite wisdom, has included a system within DNA to make it fluid so that it's not set in stone, so that it doesn't violate our free will. In other words, if you're cautious and you respect your family history of alcoholism, and you either abstain from alcohol altogether or perhaps you drink casually and socially with respect, then you're probably never going to be an alcoholic because you're never. it's the sin that activates the gene. And since you're not doing it in a sinful way, the Bible doesn't say that you can't drink. It says that drunkenness is a sin. We even know that Jesus drank wine. So if you're doing it in a respectful way and it's not becoming a sin, then guess what? 
you're not going to express that gene that was handed down to you from your father, and you will probably never become an alcoholic. However, if you ignore your family history and you become an overindulger in alcohol and you start drinking in, in excess in a sinful way, now that's going to cause the expression of the gene that your ancestors passed on to you. And as a result, now you are going to likely follow the footsteps of your father and your grandfather. In other words, even though you may have a genetic predisposition from your ancestors, you still have the choice of free will and your decision making can affect the outcome. And this is what I see in Cain. Cain had some good chromosomes from Eve and he had some bad ones from Lucifer. And at this point, Cain still has free will. And when he decides to make a selfish decision to offer God the, the spoiled fruit, God rejects his offer. Now Cain could have repented. He could have made the choice to do the right thing and have better offerings in the future. But instead, he fell into anger and jealousy and he murdered his brother. And then God cursed him. And all the curse really did is open up, so to speak, some of those sleeping genes that were inside of him so that they would begin to propagate and predispose Cain to following in his father's footsteps. And that would lead to an entire lineage of nothing but wickedness. And according to many ancient scholars, the wickedness gets worse with time, that each future generation becomes more wicked than the other. And later we're going to learn that it was Cain's posterity who are the ones who uh, slept with the angels. There are many ancient apocryphal texts that say that when the fallen angels took the daughters of men, that it wasn't the Sethites, the Adamic people that they took. They took the daughters of Cain. And that's what brought about the curse of the giants. And we'll look at that in another, another lecture. Now, the last thing we want to talk about is that on the New Testament side of all of this, first of all, all of our blood has been contaminated. That's why all flesh is, is bad at this point. You know, it makes it clear in the scripture that none of our flesh is good and that it's all going to have to be changed and glorified in order to go to heaven. But Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who's hung on a tree. And we know Christ was hung on the tree. So he became the curse. And he overcame these different curses. And so we can pray to the Lord. And we can pray over our DNA. There are verses in the Bible that say that you should pray for forgiveness for your ancestors. And the things that they did. And we can overcome some of these genetic predispositions. Just because people in your family had, you know, a long lineage of certain things, whether it be cancer or obesity or alcoholism, you can still pray over that. And the Holy Spirit can begin to alter your DNA. And if you don't believe that, then just look at what Paul says, what kind of verbiage he uses to the person who's born again and receives the Holy Spirit. He says that they're a new creation. And he refers to that process as 
regeneration. They've been regenerated. We'll look at the root word generation. It has the root word gene. See, the only way that the Holy Spirit can change your mind and your will and your emotions is to do it all the way down on a genetic and cellular level. And so make no mistake, the Holy Spirit has the power to regenerate your DNA and remove these curses because Christ redeemed us from the curse. And so I would admonish you to be praying over your, your genetics, over your family, over your DNA, as you include that into your prayer life. And so for there, we're going to stop. And uh, on that note, Godspeed, and we'll see you on the next one.